Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kalina Koltai, where I ask her, what do we do about all this vaccine misinformation? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this guest. I'm so excited for this topic, even though it is like one of the more upsetting things of our time, but we're going to kind of put a interesting spin on it as we so often do. Welcome to the show, Kalina Koltai, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. She researches how people make decisions and form opinions based on what they see on social networking sites and in digital communities. You guys, if you need to like pause that, rewind it and listen to it again, Maybe you should, because essentially, Kalina is saving the world and researching how to do so. So welcome to the show, Kalina. How are you? I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And what a wonderful intro. I'm going to use that for all my other future intros. I mean, you really should. And also, just so people know, Kalina's already aware you have this coolest hair. You've got this like dusty rose gold bleach and tone. People can't see it because they're obviously listening, but like, oh my gosh, I'm slow clapping for the color. I just had to put it out there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I had all of a sudden just like several people in my life that I realized were choosing not to be vaccinated. And the reason for their choosing to not be vaccinated in literally every case came from rumors that they had seen online or someone had told them um, around dangers from the vaccine. I just assumed that every, I mean, I was chomping at the bit to get that fucker. When I got the vaccine, I was like, this is the first time in my life that HIV has ever like scored me a win because I was able to get the vaccine in like March a little early because I'm HIV positive. It didn't ever occur to me that people were going to like not want to take the vaccine because it seemed like such a clear way out of this mess. And I really love that you research how people make decisions based on opinions that they have seen on social media and social networking sites. I think that's it's so important for us to understand how people come to these conclusions. You actually point out like already in this description, something that's actually really telling uh, about the sort of widespread vaccine hesitancy that we've been seeing here, which is that there's a lot of different reasons why. And in reality, a lot of us know someone, even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd have so many colleagues, fellow academics, people at conferences, just, you know, in my day to day who would say like either they had vaccine hesitancy or they have a loved one, you know, someone trying to talk like about their sister who didn't want to vaccinate their kid for, you know, um, the MMR vaccine. I never blame anyone. If you, someone who's experiencing vaccine hesitancy, particularly over the past years. So many people, even people who got vaccinated, some people had the reaction like, should I just experiencing some hesitancy? I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. I want that to be uh, a reminder to everyone that we talk to in the show is that it's it's never, never demonize anyone for experiencing some vaccine hesitancy. It's a very real emotion that we all have. Okay. So can I ask something about that really quick? Oh yeah, because sure. I was like really trying to come from like this place of compassion for like a hot minute from like, you know, I was. And then all of a sudden, like in July, I lost my shit. So how do you find that compassion? Is it just like practice or is it just like we really need to just, I find compassion for people for all sorts of shit. I can do it for this, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, you know, uh, even prior to this, I, for a lot of my work, I spent, you know, hours and hours at anti-vaccination conferences, doing interviews. I'd attend protests and really talk to the people there. And I think at the core, everyone there wanted the best for their kids, particularly talk about childhood vaccines, right? Everywhere genuinely is like, I want the best for my child. I want to protect them. I want them to be safe. It was never anything malicious. And if you realize that's actually the core at what people on both sides want, they want people to be safe and healthy. And then I realized we can start building that bridge from there. Because at the moment, we really just completely lose it. And I can say that even for myself, there's sometimes where I get so frustrated. It's like, why won't these people get vaccinated? Uh, I feel that myself. Um, And I just have to take a moment and think about, you know, it is... A really difficult world out there, particularly that's how much how much of our lives are online and how much content we get online and how it can be really difficult sometimes to parse through it. Like, what do we trust and not trust? And sometimes we want to just say, you know what, I can't tell, so I'm just not going to risk it. And that happens with a lot of people. So as long as we can think that, because... There are people who are savable. There are people who I've known that I've talked to or like I've given these guest lectures to students and they have let me know afterwards that they were able to convince their loved ones to get vaccinated. So it is not a lost cause. I think we can continue to build that bridge and kind of build that empathy um, to continue to reach out to those and our, our loved ones who are not vaccinating. Because if we completely cut them off, there is no way that they're going to vaccinate. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely think like, you know, can't cut off. I also have like some of the people who did come out of the woodwork, they just didn't see it coming that they would be particularly like experiencing vaccine hesitancy. So what are some of the common types and examples of vaccine misinformation that people might run into? Vaccine misinformation uh, really spans a wide gamut. And sometimes I use the term vaccine opposed content because vaccine misinformation can sometimes have a really big gray area, like what is sometimes considered exactly misinformation. And I want to be clear because there are sometimes things are called misinformation and some things are disinformation. So specifically, I would say that misinformation is often incorrect or misleading information that inadvertently shared to the um, to influence public opinion or obscure the truth, whereas disinformation is something that it's deliberately shared. It is false information deliberately and often covertly spread to influence public opinion or obscure the truth. So when it comes to vaccine misinformation, uh, there's different ways that misinformation can manifest or look like. There's different techniques that could be applicable to even other contexts. And then there's something I call vaccine misinformation narratives, stories uh, that relate to maybe larger stories that uh, convince people to have more doubt to sort of become more vaccine hesitant. So um, as an example, if a type of misinformation you might see, you might see sometimes manipulated images or um, something decontextualized. So you might see a quote taken out of like a larger context or a bit of data without sort of like, where did this data come from? So um, a really common type of misinformation you might see is something um, using data from VAERS, which is the Vaccine Adverse Reporting System, which was a system that was set up um, from the CDC even prior to the pandemic that allowed anyone to report a vaccine injury or a suspected one. You didn't have to be a healthcare professional. You didn't have any sort of time limit on it. You could have been like, well, you know, I got a flu shot a few years ago and I kind of felt sick afterwards. So let me go and report that. So if you go into VAERS, you'll see people write things like I got a vaccine and then I got hit by a car or I got electrocuted or I developed superpowers and people trolling the system. So while it is a database set up to as a signaling system, as like if 
there's reports coming in be like, hey, there's something funky going on here. Um, but since ads have gotten more and more popular, there are people who flood the system and we cannot necessarily trust all the data that's put into VAERS. But you'll see sometimes vaccine misinformation, like here is the CDC data set saying here are the like hundreds or thousands of injuries that are reported. Um, and then you have con- decontextualization. So an injury could be like, well, I was a little sore on my arm. And we could obviously think that like, you know, having a little arm soreness or a little bit of redness on an injection site is a pretty minor risk when it comes to a vaccine. Uh, but now we see this very large number, like, oh, thousands of people have you know, reported an injury. Well, thousands of people might have had some arms. Like when I got vaccinated, my arm was definitely sore for a few days. But I think that's a reasonable risk. But you see how suddenly you take a bit of information and obscure it, and then it becomes misinformation, uh, even though there's some bit of truth to it, because you're missing those larger contexts of where that comes from. Is that part of the CDC? Yes. So that's why a lot of these sites can say this is CDC information because it came from theirs, which is part of the CDC. But literally anyone, it's like Wikipedia, like any motherfucker can go on there and say anything. And that wasn't doctors or healthcare professionals. It wasn't a vetted proven injury or even a vetted proven instance. It's just like literally anyone can go on there. Is this a very common way that people start these vaccine narratives from theirs? It's something we see consistently time and time again. It's definitely, I would say, one of the really big chunks of it. Um, and just even educating someone on VAERS and explaining what it is uh, could actually help sort of dispel like, oh, you know, I didn't know that anyone can go and report it or that there's actually a lot of false reports in there. And I think what happens often, depending on how sort of deep people get into the anti-vaccination community, is that they can sort of explain a lot of different things away. But I think the bigger thing is we have to talk about like a larger narrative because there's going to be almost an endless supply of misinformation, an endless supply of rumors or like, Here's a story I heard of this one woman getting sick or this one person, this injury. And you can try to debunk that. But, you know, there are thousands and thousands of like uh, bits of misinformation. So we got to really think about this on a large scale as a narrative. Why do people not trust that the vaccine is, is safe or why do they think it's not necessary? Why do they think COVID is not a bigger threat? Um, and those are like the way that I think about structuring how we um think about misinformation, particularly around vaccines. Which I think is also so interesting because like you literally work at a place that is for the informed public at the University of Washington. And your doctorate is from the University of Texas in Austin, I believe. And it's in public, what again? Public. Oh, like a- so my, I'm in information studies. So my PhD is in information studies. Yes, it's like the fiercest fucking, like, oh my God, that is so cool. So you literally, you're an expert in how people get, I I can't stand it. It's so cool. Information study. It's the (laughs) coolest. So how does, how does like these examples of misinformation differ from like anti-vaccine sentiment? Yes. So uh, the way that I think about sentiment is just sort of people's opinion. Like, how do you feel about the vaccine? And this can also change depending on the vaccine. Some people are absolutely against vaccines. There's a group of people who are even called vaccine abolitionists that think like every single vaccine is out to, you know, kill you or injure you, we have to get rid of every single one. Um, and then you can imagine that, like, on the very, like, extreme side. So, like, every single vaccine is good. We all need at every single vaccine. And, you know, you can imagine, like, there is a lot of people in between. And so your sentiment on vaccines and which vaccines can really vary. So, like, some people think, well, I do think that they're good and they probably work, but maybe not for me. Maybe I don't need it. And maybe that's how some people feel about flu, right? Like, oh, it doesn't really work every year. Maybe I don't need it. I'm not at risk. But it's really good for, like, someone who's a kid or someone who's older, right? 
right? And you can imagine a lot of people fit into that bucket um, and versus someone who's like, you know, I'm going to like wait and choose on this vaccine. Maybe um, do I really need to say the HPV vaccine? Is that for me? And so there's a wide range of how the way people feel about a vaccine. And so um, that is a range. And I think the way that misinformation plays into that is misinformation can move you um, somewhere on the spectrum of how you feel about vaccines. Um, and not it could be about one vaccine or it could be about all vaccines. So what's it like when we encounter vaccine misinformation? Like, where might we we see vaccine misinformation? Like, what platforms and sites? So uh, I have two answers for this, because I think a lot of this has changed um, during the pandemic. So if we're talking about, like, over the past year and a half, you can see vaccine misinformation literally everywhere. (laughs) I don't think it's just limited to social media sites and social networking sites, even though that's where I spend a good chunk of my time. Um, I think you can even see this on like your local news. You can hear this like going down to your local bodega, uh, you know, in your community, in your family, what's at group. You know, the only way to completely shield yourself is like probably being a hermit in a cave. <laughs> and the reason why is like because vaccines and COVID is it, like the number one topic over the past two years. And so just naturally you're going to get exposed. Even if you think about digital communities, imagine even having being in a dog-centered Facebook group um, and someone now people talking about, you know, vaccine and COVID because of like, are you wearing a mask at the dog park? Are you, um, oh, is that people get vaccinated? Things like that. So even other areas that normally had zero vaccine conversation, it just becomes a part of our lives. You know, you, you read a news article and you go in the comments and you can expose the vaccine misinformation there. And I say one thing that's particularly interesting when we think about vaccine misinformation, um, just like other bits of misinformation, is it often creates a really emotional response in us, right? Emo- uh, vaccine misinformation and just like other misinformation, um, it gets its power when it's spread from one person to another. It just stays with one person, never goes anywhere. That it ha- It's a very like so unsuccessful bit of misinformation. Um, but when it's shocking or causes emotional response or like, oh, I must tell other people this, uh, that's when it spreads, right? And oftentimes this is with the intention of, you know, needing other people to know this, right? Like this is a thing that people must know. I need to tell my friends, my family, my loved ones, people within my network. Uh, and when it comes to vaccine misinformation, think about like, oh, vaccines who, that we've always been told safe. Here's evidence of why it's not safe. And that's shocking. That causes that emotional response. Here is a case of someone who thinks they have a vaccine injury. Oh my gosh, that's shocking. And so that spreads like wildfire, both online and digital and physical communities. I know that for me, with some of the people who I found out were anti-vax, I was finding a lot of articles that spoke to um, someone who was really anti-vax and then got COVID and died. And I would like send them that. Or someone who like, a lot of the things that were like, you know, people begging you to get vaxxed, like, you know, after the fact, like when people were like realizing like, oh, maybe this wasn't a lie. So I was wanting to send that to some of the people who were refusing to do it. And I guess the other thing that came up for me is that like, it also elicits an emotional response in me wanting to tell my network of people to get vaxxed and to share with them the information that I find. But the information that I find doesn't seem like it's coming from fake places because I'm using like, you know, like Newsweek and like just like reputable sources of information that aren't from like Newsmax and OAN Network and all these like crazy ultra right wing places. Um, so, but couldn't someone who is kind of vaccine hesitant and anti vax say that like I am being emotional and I am like wanting to share misinformation if they have already decided that like vaccines aren't safe? 
Yeah, they can, they can definitely say that, right? You know, you could be like, oh, you are reacting to propaganda like that, you know, that the fear that worry that COVID is worse than it is, right? So there's there's a lot there. And I think, you know, there there's sort of multiple different types of actors who are involved in this. There are people who are absolutely sort of like disinformation producers, people who know that they're putting out um, disinformation about vaccines uh, for whatever purpose, usually to like encourage people not to vaccinate or maybe even for some financial gain, right? Okay, so, what, so, what's that, so what's that about? Like in your studies, like why... With people who are purposely spreading disinformation, like, have you been able to study, like, why the fuck are they doing that? Like, because they get off on chaos or maybe there's like a financial gain because like more people will be sick or something or they have stock in Invermectin or whatever. What is I it? mean, yeah, like a, little, a little bit of all of the above. Like, you know, there are people who also like, you know, while pushing, you know, misinformation, disinformation, there's like, but buy my product, right? You know, here is a holistic treatment that's going to, you know, protect you from COVID or boost your immune system. You know, there are oh, definitely people shit, who do girl. that. That's all over the place in the yoga community now, because now the yoga community has just like changed so much. There's like all these like Trump ass fucking anti-vax fuckers and like the yoga community, which I never would have saw coming because like, I was a part of that community for so long and it really is like really polarized now. But yeah, they'll be like, here's this tangerine oil because that's going to boost and like elderberry syrup and that's going to boost your, which I mean, it can and it probably does help in certain ways. But bitch, do the East and the West. It's not got to be either or, honey. Let's do everything. But yes, Fuck, that is so true. Keep going. I'm obsessed. Keep telling me everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's true. I mean, that is like, you know, you, and you see people who even um, are part of like even uh, like some of these like Instagrammers who are part of like MLM schemes, you know, like, oh, here is uh, my doTERRA product or here is all these other yes. options that you can do. And but then they're like, but they're also pushing misinformation at the same time. Right. And that also brings in viewers and brings in clicks. So there's that. There's also people who have built whole careers out of it. Right. From books and TV shows. There's people from a lot aspect but you can buy like if you buy our hundred dollar or thousand dollar package we'll give you all like the documents you need and help you get a vaccine exemption there are lawyers who are like oh we'll like argue for you even though they know there's not a case that's worth winning and even like joe rogan like and even like like for a podcast of an anti-vaxxer because if you know that you can like get people to react off of fear and like latch onto a narrative and become more like radicalized in that community, they're going to want to listen to your podcast every day. They're going to want to follow your Instagram. And we know that like the more followers you have, the more clicks you get, like the more money people are going to pay you to like to have on your shit. Like that's how it works. So really like that is actually a really sinister side that like it really didn't even occur to me. Like that it's really like radicalizing folks to ultimately take their fucking money and put them at serious risk of like dying or killing someone that they love. Like that is such a deep twisted moment that I didn't see coming. So, okay. Facebook. It is a thing, especially for well, it's just a thing. I don't, it, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's just a lot of stuff goes on on there. So how does this misinformation and disinformation circulate on social media platforms? And do you find that they, that like someone will get information from like a really radicalized source and then they can almost like switch it around and make it seem not so radicalized and then just like share it on Facebook? 
Yeah, so there are a few different ways that information flows. And it's not just about Facebook, but I think the important thing is even thinking about how content travels from platform to platform, right? So, you know, you'll see something happen on TikTok and that video can get spread across multiple platforms. Or you'll see something being shared on an, um, something like Telegram, which is a uh, you know social networking site and con- connection tool that has little to no moderation, right? So you'll see sometimes really extreme content being there and then shared onto Facebook and then vice versa. There's a lot of different sort of pathways in which content can start and spread across multiple platforms. So I think that's an important thing to know. Um, there's also these small like digital communities. So sometimes we call these like small world networks where you have sort of these like a close knit um, area. So, you know, someone within your sort of small world here shares a bit of content that they saw somewhere else. And now that spreads there and that can then spread outwards. And I think um, in particular, you'll see a lot of people who are um, major proponents of like the um, of the anti-vaccination with people who are major thought leaders who are famous who have a lot of followers they'll say something that sort of winks at it right they'll say like oh they'll suggest that the vaccine is unsafe they never say oftentimes like explicitly this vaccine is going to kill you right they say like oh isn't this interesting or they give the wink or they're not like oh you know it's a good thing that you know you don't do this or isn't this like suspicious and then followers can take that content and then add like a more extreme take to it right you'll see um even sometimes as silly as like those magnet videos i don't know if you remember seeing those yeah. people saying like oh you get vaccinated here and like maybe someone making a joke video or something their arms a little sticky and then suddenly someone collects all those videos together and that gets like packaged out and sent out to all these people um and then we even think about this globally this is not something that's just isolated here to the u.s and you lose a lot of contextualization there was videos we saw early on people saying getting uh, vaccinated in a completely different country uh and then you get that shown here and so um they have something's like a some of these uh, vaccines, uh, and I'm going to highlight this, that you, don't, you put this in, you just have the needle, and then the needle retracts in. But if you just look at it and don't realize the needle's retracting in, it looks like it's fake or the needle itself has been broken off the arm, which is not true, right? But then you'll see the same footage being repackaged with different languages uh, in different like contexts and say, look, you can't trust it. It's a fake vaccine or they're breaking off the needle and all these different things. Maybe that's the microchip. Um, and all this from just one like footage of someone like a shaky camera uh, and so it's it becomes this really tough cycle because it's not just like one way that information is flowing online. Particularly, we think about it globally. We think about it across platforms and think about what the different networks are in. Like even something as like. Um, America's frontline doctors, right? So they have their website and their platform. Um, and then you'll see, uh, I've had doctors forward me emails that some of their colleagues have sent them. I'll see their content um, on every single social networking site. We'll see like um, phrases and sort of like bits of information they put out being repackaged by another like influencer and being shared. So there are so many different ways that vaccine misinformation and disinformation flows online. It, it becomes it becomes almost an endless challenge to like try to combat it because there's so many different ways that we see it and manifest. It's not just like, here is the one person who's spreading everything and we could just take down that one person's content. Mm. Okay, yes. What about like political groups, religious and faith-based groups, and like groups that target women? Um, How do those affiliated groups like experience misinformation and how will it target them specifically? 
That's a really great question. I'm really glad that people are paying more attention about the way that misinformation can target different communities. You know, at at the beginning um, of our talk, you mentioned like some people are worried about the infertility issues. Some people are worried about the risk. There might be some people who are worried more worried about like whether or not they can trust the government or a pharmaceutical company. There's so many different reasons why uh, people might be hesitant, right? And so you think about maybe a particular reason might uh, resonate with one person, but not another. So uh, we know, for example, for women, uh, women... um, who make up a large portion of the uh, vaccine and post movement even prior to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they're often the ones making healthcare decisions for the family. They're the ones, you know, making sometimes the appointments to get the kids vaccinated. Um, and, you know, another component is that is like, you know, your women's health and your fertility. And so we got to think about how this group's experience um with healthcare then comes into this line. You know, women um, <laughs> across the board have had experiences like, well, maybe their symptoms have been ignored. And you think about the way that they might have felt mistreated, ignored, um, you know, throughout their their lives. And so you can see how misinformation around vaccines can really target that community. It's like, well, you know, we know that healthcare doesn't treat you. They often ignore your choice. If you feel like your kids have this issue, well, you're just maybe being a bad mother. You're not doing things right. Uh, and you really target uh, that community, right? Um, you hear the historical uh, mistreatment of women and you use that towards them. Uh, you could use this towards other communities of color who have like a long historical and current modern day mistreatment, right? Particularly, we often talk about like the black community here in the US, right? We could think of everything from Tuskegee, but it's not just Tuskegee, right? It is still today, you know, oftentimes black people's pains are ignored when they go into healthcare or they're often um, ignored or sent home. And it's like black mothers have like a three times higher like mortality rate. or so, I think, I think that's statistic but I mean the healthcare system has consistently dismissed the experience of black and brown women um and women as a whole I mean the medical but I mean first and foremost black and brown women women of color um but also the medical system as a whole was like a patriarchal system that excluded women for the first multiple hundreds of years of its existence um because it was thought that like only white men could be doctors for hundreds of years so that is obviously a legit thing. Then there's other like religious groups that are just like vaccine opposed because like they just don't believe in like modern medicine intervention of any kind. Right. You can find people within any religion, I would find, that are advocating for vaccines and people who are against vaccines. Right. And sometimes uh, you can what you can do when it comes to a particular religious group, uh, you see this for a variety. So it's not one religion that does this, that has like a growing vaccine hesitant population, is that you can use religious texts and the values and the ideology of the religion to argue why vaccines are not safe. And so, you know, People who are religious figures in these communities um, really are key and central in maybe helping promote vaccine um, acceptance and vaccine uptake, right? But if you have your religious figure that you trust and you revere, as you know, as a person who is a trusted source of information, they're saying, like, do not get this vaccine because it's risky or because it has anything from it's the mark of the beast or, you know, we can't trust the government because they've ignored us for so long. Uh, And then suddenly you're like, oh, I understand that because that's similar to my values. But, you know, we've seen even say, like, you know, religious leader in churches who say, like, you know what, we're going to have a vaccination drive, right? Or we're going to, like, have this be really central. And so it's not just the religion itself, but he can use the religion as a way to pull people into that misinformation, right? Um, I've heard many people say along the lines of, 
you know, oh, God will protect me, right? God will, like, if I, what, why do I need a vaccine uh, if, you know, God's going to protect me from everything? God may be perfect. Well, the other flip is you could say, well, you know, God, you know, blessed us with a vaccine, right? Gave us the abilities and the tools and the knowledge and the, made us work together to have a vaccine to help save us and protect us. Since we do have a lot of religious protections in this country, sometimes people even lie and say that they, you know, truly believe that religion and use it as a guise to get, like I say, a religious exemption. And that's another component to it, right? Um, maybe people don't genuinely hold that sort of religious ideology, but they're like, oh, I know that my religious beliefs are going to be protected. So I'm just going to say that, you know, X, Y, Z, because I'm actually genuinely scared about the vaccine. It's not about the religion. So right. there's a lot of different dimensions about that. Um, okay. So then what now I feel like this other thing that we're seeing is this really like political um, issue to it too. This like intersection of like, you know, your political affiliations, which is interesting because every major Republican has been pretty open about their, uh, that they have gotten the vaccine, whether it was Trump, McConnell. Um, a lot of people have been very open about their willingness to get a vaccine. But then also we know that like, I think the last statistic I heard was that like a quarter of the Republican conference had not been vaccinated in the federal house. So the fuck is that all about? I mean, their Messiah, Trump said to do it. And then in Alabama, they booed his ass off the stage when he said, get vaccinated. He's like, oh, I didn't mean it. Why is there this, there seems to be such a political bend, even though some Republicans have said, like, you know, it's safe, it's effective, you should get it. But I do think it's like, I don't watch Fox News a lot, but when I do see clips of it and when I have seen um, aspects of uh, vaccine misinformation. But I think it's safe to say that Fox is disinformation because there is a knowledge from the upper echelons of Fox that they would know that this is misinformation and they know exactly what they're doing to increase their bottom line and viewership and to increase a mistrust that is going to make people want to tune into these shows every night. Which kind of leads back to your first thing of like, well, why are people wanting to just dispute basic facts? Why are people wanting to, like, why, what is the larger reason for this symptom of vaccine hesitancy, vaccine misinformation? And I think the political affiliation here is a really large part of it. Is that new? Well, it's something that's definitely changed over the past, like, five, six years, right? So even if you look at... um Reports from Pew Research Center from like 2015, 2017, and you look at the uh, portion of the population, if, whether you're right leaning or left leaning, is actually that, you know, vaccine hesitancy is actually pretty much the same, like 87 and 88%, right? Uh, most people when you're thinking that vaccines are good. So for a large chunk of time, it was considered nonpartisan, right? Um, my two, my two cents on this is, <laughs> is that a lot of this actually started changing in 2016. And there's a particular quote from a woman I interviewed, and it still sticks with me because it's such a great example of this, where um, she was talking about, you know, uh, I was interviewing her about her pain about vaccines uh, for my work, and we're talking about the election and, and Trump at that time for 2016. And she was like, you know, I cannot stand the man. I think he's terrible. He's such a misogynist, like railed about how terrible he was. But thank God for him because he is going to save us from vaccines, right? And you were just, and I was just like, Whoa, that, that, that is a lot to unpack there. Um, and I think 
you know, regardless of now whether or not he's vaccinated or not, because he is vaccinated, you may think like, well, he was the president, you know, or, you know, he was this. Like, is it, did he really get vaccinated or he's just saying this to appease everyone, right? Do you even trust whether or not he got vaccinated? And I think there's been a push um, leading up to the pandemic of, you know, greater amounts of, you know, concert, people within the GOP, people who are more conservative leading, becoming more and more vaccine hesitant because it got more and more politicized. And I know that's like everyone talks about that, even though science in itself has always been political. It's not like vaccines were never a political topic because we mandate vaccines, right? You, I had to get vaccinated to go to any school here. A lot of people do that. To be able to travel, we need vaccines. You know, vaccines and vaccine mandates are not a new thing here. But, you know, we, we require it. If you're a healthcare worker, we require vaccines. But um, over the past five years, leading up to this most recent election and the pandemic, we saw more and more people within the GOP um, supporting bills that are like parents' right to choose, parents' right to opt out. So we saw that there is this alignment that happened all across the country that people who uh, were within sort of these conservative bases were supporting leaders that were supporting this right of like, I want to be able to choose, right? And you're wrapping this up into these ideas of freedom. I don't think we should force anyone to get vaccine. I want someone to choose to get the vaccine. Like I chose to get the vaccine, right? Uh, but if we portray it as like the government is mandating and forcing it, that is a really great way to get a lot of people to like not want to do that, right? Like, oh, we and talk about like seatbelts. We do seatbelts for safety. Like when we sit next to our friend in the in the car, they're not wearing their seatbelt. Like, no, put your seatbelt on in case we get into an accident, right? We don't say put the seatbelt on in case we get pulled over because I don't want to get a ticket or I don't want to get in trouble or, you know, with government, right? We, we have lost the framing, the way that we think about this. And so tying vaccines to something like as a threat of freedom appealed to a large swath of the population. The damage has been done, right? You're adding conflicting messaging leading up to their vaccination, right? You had people who were saying like, oh, is the vaccine safe? Or maybe it's not safe. Do we trust Pfizer? Do we not? Oh, which vaccine is, oh, is it effective? And a lot of this mixed messaging um, decreases our certainty on whether or something is safe, right? It's like when it comes to like politicians and thought leaders, we do have to ask ourselves, what do they have to gain for promoting misinformation? What does someone have to gain for promoting to get the vaccine? For most people that are promoting to get the vaccine, it's about community health. It's about protecting your health, protecting your family's health. For people that are very opposed to vaccines, it's very, um, it's fear-based. The government's overreaching. There's not good science to back this vaccine up. Um, but it's very like fear-based and a lot of it does track itself back to misinformation because for those of us that are wanting people to get vaccinated, I mean, the trials of this most recent coronavirus vaccine, there was 30,000 people plus in these trials. I mean, it was a quicker trial um, because of the emergency order. However, the research for these um, mRNA vaccines started in 2004, which is something we've also talked about on this podcast. It was a response to like MERS and SARS, which has also not been a narrative that I think the government has really done a great job of talking about because the funding for the research on these types of vaccines, which are a different type of vaccine, these are the first successful mRNA vaccines. This research has been like 15 years plus in the making. It's not like they did it in nine months. And it was for that reason that those, you know, 15 years of research led to them being able to find a successful vaccine and that whole Operation Warp Speed thing. Um, but, you know, people don't talk about that, but that's reality. You can find these, you can find this funding. You can find this. You're, you agree, yes? I'm right about that, right? Yes. Yeah, no, no, no. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and like the, the 
it's interesting because you still will see people say like, oh, it's tested or it came out too quickly. And, you know, people realize it's a lot of the bureaucracy that was cut out, right? You know, if you were look at a chart of like, you know, there's normally a like large portion of time because you have to argue for funding, you have to argue for a variety of things. And so vaccine development can take a really long time. And people were like, oh, our idea is like something it's developed quickly. It must be shoddy. Like if you built a car really quickly, you're like, oh, is that like good? <laughs> um, but we realized we actually, you know, got rid of the bureaucracy, right? We wanted to get something out quicker because uh, it's a public good. You know, it really is absolutely like in a sense, a miracle that we're able to get a vaccine so quickly, right? Thank goodness we were able to get one. Uh, and, and so there is, it's interesting that, you know, you'll even see people say like, well, I don't know what's in it, right? And I think this is where it comes to this like larger idea, right? There's a lot of sort of like talking points and bits of like misinformation we can debunk, but then it's like, well, if you don't know what's in it, like would a list of ingredients help you? And they might say yes, but like, it's not just about that. It's because they needed, they need someone to actually sometimes talk out, um, their fears and their worries. I'm not an immunologist, right? I don't physically develop the vaccines. My background's not in biology. So me reading a list of vaccine, like ingredients in a vaccine is actually not very helpful. I think where it comes down to is risk and the different ways that, uh, you know, misinformation plays to those risks and those fears and those worries. And now we can even, we can even talk about like large conspiratorial stuff. There's like larger, like and very, very big conspiratorial stuff about like depopulation and how like vaccines are related to depopulation. That's a whole other thing. Oh yeah. Oh, do people say that? Do people say that it's like linked to like that? Well, you know, so uh, if depend, so again, big gamut of like, someone's like, oh, I'm not sure to someone who's like, all vaccines are bad. The, like there is a, always a conspiratorial like component to this, right? So if you think that vaccines are out to um, cause infertility, which is an old narrative, like all the narratives we've seen about vaccines are ones that have, they've always been there. They're not unique to COVID, right? You any vaccine out there has been like linked to like, oh, it's going to make women infertile, so therefore as a depopulation thing, X Y Z, and that is an old conspiracy theory, like keeping whatever person elite in power um, and sort of trying to like control population. Now, I think that most people who are vaccine hesitant today don't necessarily think it's a depopulation measure, but we can see how like we can even link uh, this idea of like, oh, is it going to hurt, uh, you know, affect my fertility or affect my development, like related to a classic conspiratorial idea. Right. And so there's all these sort of like veins even that connect that way. So how can we ultimately help listeners identify misinformation? Like we take 10 deep breaths, we meditate. Then you want to like, do I have to wait for the vaccine hesitant person to come to me? Or can I like find out that they're a vaccine hesitancy and be like, honey, I heard so-and-so told me that you're not doing it. Can I, can you tell me about what some information you got is? And like, or if someone does bring you something like, or if someone's just listening to this, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I hope some of the people that I've been, you know, low key referencing is listening to this episode. Um, how can we empower people to identify misinformation that they encounter? Yeah, I would say uh, there's a lot of different wonderful ways to do that, at both as an individual um, for yourself, like as you go um, through your day-to-day life, but also for loved ones, right? So for yourself, I'd say the big thing to do is always take a moment to pause. Uh, I was just at a... Um, we were just at a meeting yesterday for, with a bunch of my coworkers and um, someone there who uh, wasn't in academia mentioned that like one of the best things he's learned from us over the past year is that like 
to take a pause, to take a moment. If something makes you feel, has an emotional response, like, oh my gosh, this is shocking. Maybe that's a moment to think about, let me do a little more researching, right? So there's really great debunking methods to search, say, you know, look for better coverage. Are other organizations, what else is being said about this thing? Um, even doing, if there's an image that's like really shocking, doing a reverse Google image search on that, right? Is this an old image that's being repackaged? Um, oh. Is it this something potentially misleading? If it, you see a quote, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe... You know, if someone took a quote saying, you know, vaccines are, if I said vaccines are bad, you're like, oh, on this podcast, Colina Coltai says vaccines are bad. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're missing the context in which I said vaccines are bad. Right. So it's always important to do a little bit more work. Like, you know, I know it's a touchy phrase now, but do a little bit of research (laughs) and get to the source. Like, where is this coming from? So I think for us, you know, our instinct is like we see something and we share and the platform's are really, really easily designed for us to see something, to like it, to share it. And I think once you get really good at being able to do something like that, that's a really great technique to help your loved ones, right? Um, I will say there's going to be a variety of different reasons why maybe your loved one person in your life is vaccine hesitant. And you're not going to be able to convince every single person out there. We know that there is a lot of people who are uh, really, really deep in that misinformation, and it's going to take a long time. But there are sometimes people who just need to be able to talk about it, right? So it's like, hey, you know, why are you hesitant? What are your worries? Like, well, let's let's talk about it. Let's go and try to find some sources. Let's debunk together. Let's try to, like, wade through this. And you can take your, you know, your newfound debunking skills and walk through your loved one through it, you know, never judging, saying like, oh, I think you're wrong for having this fear and trying to maintain that open line of communication. Right. Um, and really emphasizing that you care about them. Right. I think particularly if it's a family member or a close friend saying like, I care about you. I want you to be safe. I want you to be healthy. You know that, you know, I myself got vaccinated. All these people I know I got vaccinated. You know, I do think that, you know, this is going to be the best thing. I want the best for you. I worry about you. And it, leveraging sort of that connection, I think, can be really impactful. You know, I've heard students leverage, being able to leverage their parents that way. Like, I care about your health, you know? And, and I think the hard part is that, like, sometimes people are going to have a loved one that they're not able to reach. And that's the hardest part, right? That no matter how much debunking they do with them, no matter how much they emphasize their their care for them and how much they want them to save, there there is a really, you know, strong portion, like even like prior to the pandemic, if someone was already vaccine hesitant prior to the pandemic, they're going to be an incredibly hard person to reach. But I think for a lot of people who are out there are still really uneasy. They're just not sure about the risk and being able to talk about it with someone who is supportive of them, who loves them, has that empathy, has that compassion and able to help guide them through the process of debunking. Even if it's talking to a trusted doctor, uh, that could be really helpful. Um, And something that I've I've heard already has helped a lot of people. So if there's someone who is just really taking this misinformation as fact, they are really, really like just not having it because this is, it almost reminds me of that whole like voting thing of like, do you, try to go for the swing voters or do you just really double down on your base so it's like if someone is still kind of in the middle it sounds like you know we can help them debunk we can help them with our skills like trying to you know keep it open keep it communicative keep it compassionate loving and just you can always come back and try if you feel like there's some wiggle room but if someone is just like hardcore vaccine hesitant, hardcore anti-vax, not going to be having it. And you can see that they're not going to be having it. Is it even worth it to, is, is it even worth it? Or you just go to people who you think you have more of a chance with? I think you do have to pick and choose your battles, right? I think even prior to the pandemic, um, if some, 
I don't think you can convince every single person to vaccinate, you know, um, as long as we've had vaccines, we've had people against vaccines. You know, it's one of these like really longstanding anti-science sort of phenomenons and movements that's been going on for a very, very long time. It's been going on since the smallpox vaccine in like the 16 and 1700s, hasn't it? Like, doesn't it go back to the first vaccine, which was for smallpox? So I've been researching this topic since like 2015. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, we talk about herd immunity. If you have a small portion of the population uh, who is not vaccinating, that's usually fine because, you know, vaccines are can be pretty effective. So we get a large portion of people vaccinated. There's an acceptable amount. And so the biggest concern for a lot of people was like, let's just get the most people vaccinated. Right. Um, and I've often been pushing like, well, we there is actually here's my fun fact, which is not that fun and more like fact is that in all my research that I've done, there is absolutely not a single intervention or measure out there to convince someone who is strongly against vaccines to vaccinate. There's nothing that's been consistently proven. There's this work to try to like get the most people, the people who are like in that middle and that vaccine sort of hesitant spectrum. But if you're already have really well-formed, absolute negative, I do not trust the vaccine. It is out to kill me sort of like ideology. That is a difficult person to reach. And then the hard part that's really a lot of people have to grapple is, is that population, that group of people has gone from small to much bigger. And in certain parts of the country, that is a really large portion. And so the thing is, like, if you look at the public health literature, the literature wasn't uh, aimed at, like, let's try to convince this really tough, hard-to-reach group of people because they were so small, right? But now they're larger. And it's it's almost devastating to see this because for years I've talked about this is the risk, right? That there are more people out there than we possibly know about. The way that we've measured vaccine hesitancy for years, I think, has been really inefficient. And uh, I... <laughs> This was this was my big worry that we were going to have a large portion of the population people um, become really susceptible to vaccine misinformation because I knew its power. I've I've been to those conferences like I've attended and was like, oh, my gosh, maybe maybe vaccines are dangerous. They hit you there. The films and the content they put out is extremely powerful. Uh, and it made, it made me even doubt like whether or not vaccines are safe. And I have to like, re- I have to ground myself, do more research. Or, like, oh wait, no, here's actually the reasons why. Like it, they, that content is powerful. I often would joke that I couldn't convince anyone to not vaccinate because the techniques are so good. Right. Um, and the hard part is like we wanted to stop people, like we wanted to get people in this hesitant section before they go really there. And I think, you know, that we need to think about the spread of misinformation as a national issue. It is a national crisis, right? It is not just like, oh, it's because of social media. Social media certainly has exacerbated it, but it has been a longstanding problem because the anti-vaccination movement has been going. It's just like lighting more, it's like taking that petrol and just dumping it onto the fire that was already there. Um, and we need to really think about, it's not just like, attacking it from an issue of like social media platforms. That's certainly one component. We need to think about this as a multi-pronged issue because it is a prevalent issue. And especially we start thinking about the exportation of anti-vaccination ideology and content overseas. And so now we even see countries that have had historically very high rates of vaccination beginning to decrease because of the exportation of American (laughs) anti-vaccinationism. And so that's a whole other issue. So, so these conferences, I imagine, would be very scary. I would imagine it would be like how I felt listening to Donald Trump accept the Republican nomination in 2016. Like, I was like, what world are you living in? It's such a different reality. And it's so scary. So that seems really intense. Um, have you 
Do we have any reason to hope? Have you seen anyone come out of these hardcore anti-vax ideology, even though there's not a prescribed method of something that works for everyone to get them out? But have you had silver lining experiences? I would say that, you know, prior to, it's often having a loved one and uh, having sort of like a purse close, like close connection to someone and realizing that like, oh, this disease is terrible. So like, I've heard, I've talked to parents who's like, oh, you know, my kid ended up catching measles. And that made me realize like, oh, this is actually a really scary thing and made them switch their stance on vaccinations. I've talked to people who said like when they got too far in that, you know, they were really into the anti-vaccination thing, but then suddenly they started talking about chemtrails and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know that chemtrails are not true. And it made them question the group they're in. So it's, and I think that even some of that split even happened early on. And some of the groups I used to follow who are now no longer on Facebook, um, but they started going really deep into the QAnon conspiracy and talking about sex trafficking and things like that. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is making me question now the group that I'm in. So there was definitely sort of this splitting off, right, that happened. And so I don't think it is a complete complete lost cause. It's just there's nothing that we know definitively that works if someone is really deep in there, but there are people who get to leave that space. And that's why I do think the more research needs to be focused on how do you reach someone who is really deep, just like when you, if you get to talk to someone who researches, um, you know, QAnon um, believers, is that you are really deep in it and it's hard to pull someone out from that and switch it. I mean, you really have to like de-radicalize them. This is like de-radicalizing someone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and something I've often talked about is that, like, we worry that, you know, luckily, um, the anti-vaccination movement hasn't necessarily been associated with violence, but we've been seeing more and more cases of, like, you know, uh, clinics being attacked, people being attacked, more and more violent action happens, which you would see with radicalization happening, you know, same way we have really extreme, you know, misogynistic movements like incels, right? And it doesn't mean, like, everyone, not every incel or every person who's in that community is going to be violent, but you know, we see all that even happen with something like Pizzagate, right? And so you see that the power of this anti-vaccination movement, which could have a widespread appeal, regardless of what demographic it is. There's certainly people with, and like say, who are more conservative that are falling into those spaces. But, you know, there are people who are liberal who fall into those spaces, people who are young and people who are old, right? There are people who are have high education backgrounds. Having a high level degree does not make you immune to vaccine misinformation because it is just that powerful. So when COVID started happening, did you like immediately pivot for like, were you like, oh, fuck, this is like what I've been talking about. Like the vaccine is going to come out fast. Like, did you start kind of pivoting to researching and anticipating like COVID vaccine misinformation, like early on in COVID? So funny enough, uh, I was finishing up my dissertation at UT Austin, hook a horn, uh, <laughs> back in 2020. So I was finishing, I was on the job market and in my job market talks in January and February, I'm talking about COVID at that time and saying like, Hey, health misinformation, this is already happening on Facebook, like around just COVID, even before a vaccine was had, before everything was shut down. I was talking about this. I first learned about COVID actually from anti-vax groups <laughs> before I even saw it be reported on Main Street because they were worried that, you know, this is going to be another way to like force a vaccine. So they were worried about this in January of 2020. So uh, by the time I defended my dissertation, which was like in April of 2020, I was like, well, this is going to be a really big thing. Um, you know, normally you have to say like, oh, what is the justification? What's the bigger impact of your work? And that's like this section I had to spend like the least amount of time. I'm like, I, I literally did the dissertation on like the spread of, you know, anti-vaccination on Facebook. <laughs> and like really the, the timing of that. Um, and 
because, you know, I, I knew and, I, and in my heart, I knew that this was a bigger issue and like social media companies were not doing enough to combat it. But it was more than just a social media issue because it extended onto these larger issues about like how women and how people and people of color experience the system in healthcare, people's trust in pharmaceutical companies. You think about the opioid crisis and people's distrust of what's happening with you know, these large companies. Think about trust in government. So this has been a long time brewing. This is like the perfect storm of everything you can imagine to have widespread. Uh, vaccine hesitancy. And so um, I, I felt very early on at that point, even before I even knew like when a vaccine would be coming out, that as soon as we were shutting down um, and before we had all these questions that I knew it was going to be a big issue because I saw misinformation happening immediately on these spaces. Uh, and I think that is that's the tough part. As also as a person who didn't have like I'm not in a position of power to be like oh we got to shut this down and combat it right away. You just like feel like sometimes and I bet a lot of people feel this way. You feel hopeless. I think thinking like there's nothing I can do to help the situation. I felt like I knew this was going to happen, <laughs> and you sometimes feel that. But I think you know if I, I can let any listeners who do feel like it's feel seemingly hopeless is like continually talk to your loved ones, encourage people in your community to vaccinate. Um, you know, we all can get better at debunking and getting better data literacy skills uh, and, you know, pushing for the need of like, not just addressing the issue of vaccine misinformation, but misinformation as a national issue. Uh, and I think, you know, everyone from uh, our senior citizens to our kids who are starting to get online, uh, we really need to think about this because it's not just online. It's, you know, there are there is misinformation that happens in the news all the time, both in the right-leaning and left-leaning sources. There is misinformation that happens in our churches that happen in our friend groups. You know, we need to address this as a, a you know, as an epidemic. <laughs> Can you give us an example of misinformation and like left-leaning news? You know, you might think like, oh, everyone's out there just coughing on everyone, deliberately spreading. You might see like a video of someone doing this, but that doesn't mean like everyone in that state is doing it or things are being manipulated, maybe see worse than it really is, right? And I think, you know, um, is inversely is saying like, oh, that COVID is not dangerous. You might have people think like, say like, oh, if you get COVID, you're going to die. You know, and, and in reality, what we... For most people, that if they get COVID, they're luckily not going to die. The whole point of the vaccine is to protect those who are going to be most susceptible to it, right? Also, those headlines of like, unvaccinated mother of four dies of COVID, that's going to get more clicks for people and Newsweek and whoever the fuck posts that too. Because like, they love to highlight a devastating story because that makes you scared and then you click on it and then the more clicks they can go to their advertisers and be like, I had 52 million impressions this month. And then Bounty's like, get my paper towels on there. So it's just, everybody kind of sucks is what I'm hearing. Um, But obviously some more than others. It's a really confusing world. Uh, and there's a literal misinformation on both sides, but you should still fucking get goddamn fucking vaccinated because that's what the science says. Right? Yes. Yes. I would say that. Like, I will say there is more misinformation on one side than the other. I would like to make sure that, like, you know, we often talk about, like, oh, both sides. There's certainly misinformation both on right leaning and left leaning sources. Uh, there, but, but as far as mis- like which side seems to push out more vaccine hesitant type content, definitely towards more right leaning, to be clear. But oh, it does yes, happen yes. on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No question. But all news 
can have some sort of misinformation if it increases their bottom line. And that's just part of why it's a very scary world. It's scary for everyone, whether or not you are pro-vaccine or you're anti-vaccine, you know, we, I want my loved ones to be safe from COVID, um, even if, you know, they're, but because, you, you know, you hear this scary story, right? You know, you hear someone who is like in their 30s and healthy who gets COVID and dies and you would hate that to happen. Uh, but in the inside, they might see like, oh, here's a story of someone who is, you know, 30 who got the vaccine and now they're injured. And so you're hearing stories on both sides. And, but the thing is, the reality is that there are more stories of people who are getting COVID and, and dying than there are stories of people who are getting vaccinated and dying. And the thing is, is, you know, when we talk about extremes, we're missing a lot of that gray, right? You know, uh, the fertility one is, is particularly an impactful one because there are things about where you, we have to like think about the intersection with women's health, right? And that for some women, yes, their cycles got disrupted when they got vaccinated. But the thing is, you think about like, well, there are a lot of things that actually disrupt women's cycles and you think about your body having an immune response. So if you get sick, you can disrupt your cycle. So your body's having an immune response to the vaccine. It doesn't mean your fertility is being threatened. It means that your body's doing exactly what it's meant to do, which is like, oh, in a time of like, oh, I might be sick. Let me hold and like pause on maybe like releasing an egg this month. It doesn't mean that you're not able to get pregnant. Um, and I think sometimes people lose that nuance in that conversation. And that is hard to do to a large portion of the population en masse versus having that one-on-one. And I think even though it takes a lot more time, it takes a lot more money, it takes a lot more energy, it maybe is worth having all those one-on-one conversations uh, with the people who are still vaccine hesitant today, you know? And I still see people, um, there's, we're still getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people vaccinated every single day. So I don't think it is is, uh, you know, hope is not all gone. We are still working towards getting more and more people vaccinated. It's not like there's no one getting vaccinated. These are all the like diehard holdouts. There are so many people out there. We need to keep pushing and we need to have a united front. You know, we need to have people on both sides. We need to have everyone in our community pitched together to say like, not only is misinformation a huge part of the issue in this, but that vaccines are safe, they are necessary and they are efficacious and they work. You know, that is what we need. Yes, Colina Coltai, I really feel very complete. I feel like I am so grateful for you. Um, again, you are a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Where can people find you? Where can people follow your work? Where can people stay up to date with, with your stuff? Are you big on Instagram? Are you big on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. So uh, I believe I am at Kalina Koltai. So just my name. Easy enough. I'm literally the only Kalina Koltai in the world. So if you Google it, you will find me. If people want to go check out the Center for the Informed Public's website, we have resources there for teachers who want to learn um, how to be able to teach debunking to their own students. Uh, and there's a lot of wonderful ways that we can all get better at doing this. I'm so grateful for you for taking your time and sharing your amazing mind and scholarship and work with us. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we appreciate you so much, Kalina, and continue your amazing work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Colina Koltai. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, honey, introduce a friend. Show them how to find that gorgeous little box where you find your podcasts and show them how to subscribe. Yes, yes, yes. We love finding an app. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 